Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, Middle East Forum Century Radio, reporting live from the main line. A historic night in the United States last night as Democrats, for the fourth time in the last hundred years, are able to flip the House of Representatives with a gain of over two dozen seats in Congress. On the other side of the aisle, though, the Republicans make also meaningful gains by being able to pick up three or four seats in the U.S. Senate, still to be determined after a final vote count. It seems as if, though, President Trump had a stalemate last night, now leading to divided government. How this affects the Middle East, what's the status of Islamist influence on American politics, and who are some of the candidates that were elected those who came back to office to serve another term, or those who will come into office as a first-term freshman member of the House, are the issues that we will speak about this morning. But first, let's get to some news from the region. This was also a historic week in so far as President Trump re-invoked sanctions against the country of Iran, what are known as snapback sanctions, that are now going to be put in place as of Monday of this week to choke off Iran's oil and shipping industry, as reported by U.S. News & World Report. The article reads as follows. While temporarily allowing top customers to keep buying crude from the Islamic Republic, Washington has granted waivers to China, India, South Korea, Japan, Italy, Greece, Taiwan, and Turkey that may now continue imports without any penalty. However, Now, going away from the article for a second, we know that in the history of snapback sanctions against Iran, and especially those that target its hydrocarbon resource-based economic outports, or rather uh, economic exports, that this will be a vice that will continue to go around the Iranian economy. Somewhere around 90% of Iran's oil exports and their oil consumption cannot be reformed, or, or rather refined, in the country itself. We spoke about this on the program a few weeks ago, where we saw that the Russians and the Iranians had signed a deal where the Iranians will export raw oil to Russian refineries and then be brought back into that country in the form of refined petroleum products. But the more countries that are not able to take in Iranian oil will mean that the Iranians will have less capital for which to pay for their refined petroleum products. This could lead to shortages at the pump in Iranian city centers. It might be good for the Iranian environment, but it certainly will not be good for the Iranian consumer or the economy. Moreover, the less foreign capital and foreign currency reserves that the Iranians have will continue to have the downward spiral of the Iranian rial, its currency, where right now it is at an all-time high inflation rate. This portends to be an intersection for Iran. Will they allow their continuous, nefarious, and malign behavior to be exerted throughout the rest of the world? Will they reactivate their nuclear program? Will they double down on their commitment to Syria? And they're trying to sever that country into an ethnically cleansed Shia populate center, which takes place from the northeast of the country down to the southwest, or rather from the northwest of the country down to the southeast? Or will they find themselves now on the path towards reform? The battles that we have to understand about that are going on in Iran are not just between itself and the West, especially with the United States and its partners trying to invoke and put on more sanctions on the country. But also, what's going on inside of Iranian domestic politics? There's always been this misnomer where there is a reform movement led by the president of that country, Hassan Rouhani, 
versus the conservative establishment led by the Ayatollah and two two vestiges of government. One, that coming from the Assembly of Experts, and the second, that coming from the Guardian Council. The Assembly of Experts chooses who will be the Supreme Leader in the event of the Supreme Leader's death or removal from office, and the Guardian Council approves the judiciary, and also, on the other side, legislation which is coming out of the Majils, or the Iranian Parliament. The role for Rouhani now, who was elected to a, te- uh, to a second term, on the promise that he would be able to expand the economy, much to the chagrin of the conservatives, finds himself in a very sticky situation if he's not able to bring the real back to a competitive currency rate, if he's not able to restart the economy, then there will be even more clamor going on, not just in the streets of Tehran, as we've seen riots which have been taking, not riots, but protests that have been taking place since late December of last year. But also, moreover, we have to understand that there's going to be a power battle between the conservatives and the moderates. And if you consider which way the scales are tipped, with the conservatives ruling the Iranian, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, having control of the army, having control of the intelligence services, and also the paramilitary forces in the form of what's called the besiege, I think that the conservatives, when they would like to, will be able to topple Rouhani. Now, I think there's only been one or two cases of impeachment and of, in one case, exile, and the other case of a judicial process against a sitting Iranian president since 1979 with the advent and the rise of the Islamic forces after the Islamic Revolution. But right now, he seems to be in a position where he has little to no power. His vice presidents are being investigated. The Majils continuously summons him to address the ills of the country in front of the Iranian parliament, and he does not have the backing of the supreme leader. Put all of this domestic strife at the top of the country and then compare it to what's going on the street. A rise in prices, a rise in inflation, discontent amongst common everyday Iranian citizens is perhaps the only elixir that the Iranian moderate camp, which is not moderate at all if we consider calling death to Israel and death to the United States and encouraging uh, extraneous foreign interventions to be a moderate policy, which I don't think any of them are, but insofar as they're called the moderate camp, we'll just label them as such, or the less extreme camp is maybe the way that we can put it forward. But the way in which the Iranian people are affected by these sanctions could do one of two things. First, they will feel the pinch of not having as much economic opportunity as they had after the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was put into place in 2015. There was a little bit of hope and somewhat of an economic renaissance that took place in the country. Rouhani promised that by way of diplomacy and freezing their nuclear program, the average daily life of an Iranian citizen would get better. But the choice of the government was to spend the money in the windfall of cash that they got on financing their overseas terrorist-supporting activity and military adventurism, whether it be in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, or in Lebanon. Not to mention the activity of the Iranian state in South America, in Africa, and in Southeast Asia. Now, the epicenter of all of this will take place in Europe, but we'll get to that in a second in terms of the way in which the tide goes, either against the state or for its own ambitions. The Iranian people have a second option, like we talked about. If they do feel the pinch and they start agitating against the government, there will be a backlash. That could lead to a soft revolution against those in power right now, or it could lead to the solidarity of the Iranian people standing behind their government and hating the West even more. 
The goal of putting the sanctions back on Iran is noble, and it now is the appropriate use of those sanctions, not just to address the nuclear program, but all of Iran's malign behavior. There are six different steps that the president has laid out in which the Iranians have to comply with, or at least the Iranian government has to comply with, before the withdrawal of the sanctions regime. Now, the way that this host of this program hopes that that will take place is through diplomacy. But if it's any indication of the way that the diplomatic process ran by the Iranian foreign minister Zarif and the president Rouhani and even the supreme leader has taken place as an example during the Obama administration, this president and I think the Senate at least will not allow for the wool to be pulled over the Americans' eyes. As I said beforehand, Europe will be the fulcrum. Will they comply with the American sanctions regime against Iran, or will they choose to stand with the government of Iran? For me, it's not a hard choice. You stand with freedom, you stand with civil rights, you stand with the ability for countries to take their own actions for the betterment of their people, rather than to the detriment of others in the region. If Europe wants to stand on the right side of history, they will stand behind the American sanctions regime and demand reform in Iran, both with its government and with its extracurricular activities overseas. More on stories coming from the Middle East after these breaks. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in, from Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations, to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. For this segment, we turn to Arab News, one of the main media outlets coming out of Saudi Arabia, at least in the language of English. The clamor that has been taking place in terms of criticism and opinion on the U.S. election is not just limited to Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. We also find that there's an equal amount of flurry of conversation regarding the American election in the Arab and Middle Eastern news sources. We'll go first to, as I said beforehand, the Arab news, a headline from November 7th, 2018. Chicago. Voters in Minnesota and Michigan on Tuesday elected the first two Muslim women to serve in the U.S. Congress. A former refugee who fled Somalia's civil war and a Detroit-born Palestinian-American. The victories by the two Democrats, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, 
came on an election night where members of multiple minority groups had a chance to score electoral seats. In addition, Lebanese-American Donna Shalala is starting a third career with her election to the House after having served as the president of the University of Miami and also as a secretary in Bill Clinton's cabinet. Moreover, on the news coming from the Arab News, they give a profile which is a glowing portrayal of both of these candidates and now elected members of the House of Representatives. First on Omar. They call her a trailblazer. Following in the steps of Keith Ellison, the Minneapolis woman campaigned on policies embraced by the Democratic Party's most liberal wing, universal health care, free college tuition, and robust public housing. Beyond that, we also have a profile of Tlaib, a history of breaking barriers, the Arab News says. In 2008, she became the first Muslim woman elected to the Michigan legislature. And more than that, she also was now the, one of the first two Muslim women elected to the House of Representatives. The Arab News also notes that Tlaib linked her campaign to the surge of female political activism in the United States following Trump's stunning 2016 victory, alluding to the millions of women that took to the streets of Washington and major cities across the country after his inauguration. But beyond the glowing profiles that the Arab News highlighted on Omar and Tlaib, what have been their statements as it's related to Middle East policy carried out by the U.S. government? I'd like to point you to a press release that was put out by the Middle East Forum on October 5th, 2018. This was written about the Middle East Forum's Islamist Money and Politics Project, which highlighted the contributions coming from American citizens who also belong to Islamist organizations or even self-identify as Islamists, much like Nihad Awad did, the president and the founder of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, at a conference in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, where he was quoted as saying, Am I Islamist? I guess I am, and then went on to explain what he meant by that. Rashida Tlaib herself is not just someone who received a lot of funding from Islamist organizations and or from members of Islamist organizations totaling $27,944 during the last electoral cycle in her effort to win the 13th Congressional District in Michigan, but she also has extremely close ties to Islamist organizations themselves. We turn to another Middle East Forum article, which uh, highlighted throughout the rest of the year what her exact uh, links were going on with this. But before we get to that, let's talk to you about how Omar was doing beforehand. Now, Tlaib herself was going into a position where she went to campaign after having been in the Michigan House for 10 years to go over the hump and to be able to get into the position of running for Congress. But the people who were supporting her, as we pointed out beforehand, were of a little bit of a suspicious nature. Omar, uh, uh, sorry, Oren Litwin writes in an article that came in out in the Daily Caller on September 20th, 2018. Uh, Oren is the director of the Islamist Money and Politics Project. That it is important to note that Tlaib almost certainly owes her victory to Islamist support. He was talking about the primary. She had raised the most money in the Democratic primary by far, over $1.3 million, almost double the haul of her closest competitor. Warren also goes on to note that a large amount of her funding came from outside of Michigan, thanks to the strong support of national Islamist organizations, such as the Council on American Islamic Relations, M-Gage, and the Muslim Public Affairs Council. But even some of the funds raised within Michigan were due to Islamist backing. In particular, Tlaib went door knocking alongside the noted Islamist Linda Sarsour on Saturday, July 28th. 
Additionally, Oren notes, Tlaib received that figure that we had said almost over $30,000 from prominent Islamists, including leading officials of CARE, MPAC, and the Muslim American Society. Not to have anyone forget the roots of CARE's founding was by the leaders of the Islamic Association for Palestine, a front group for Hamas is identified in terror financing trials, and also the Muslim American Society was identified in courtroom testimony as the main U.S. front group for the Muslim Brotherhood. Moving over to Tlaib's actual policy positions, she's vehemently against any actions that the U.S. government has taken in the past two or three years as it's related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. First, Tlaib strongly supported the push among Democratic activists to deny that Jerusalem is Israel's capital of the country and said that she was disappointed when the Democratic Party reaffirmed Jerusalem's status in its platform in its Democratic National Convention that took place in the run-up to the 2016 election. Moreover, it appears that Tlaib is also comfortable with the Islamists than she actually talks about. She spoke at an annual conference in 2014 of the Muslim American Society and the Islamic Circle of North America. ICNA, otherwise known, is linked to the South Asian extreme movement Jamaat-e-Islami and seeks to ultimately incorporate the United States into a global caliphate per its own constitution. And worst off, Tlaib participated in a panel discussion about empowering women, where she said that a voice to accusations against Imad Hamad, director of the Arab American Affairs, Arab, uh, uh, sorry, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, was insofar as it was being made unjustified. A few other people that she associated with. First, Omar Soleimani, who has promoted and approved the use of honor killings as a metaphor for divine punishment for fornication. And also, Soleimani had said that Islam gives parents a veto power over their children marry. Moreover, Tlaib was associating with Jamal Badawi, who ruled in 2004 that, in quotes, symbolic wife beating that does not leave a mark is permitted in extreme by the Quran, though frowned upon. And moreover, this other individual was saying that sometimes wife beating can save a marriage. And lastly, she associated herself with Yasmin Mogahed, who stated in 2013 that members of the American LGBT community become, and I quote, lower than the animal. And Hamza Tsurtsis, who in 2008 claimed, we are Muslims rejecting the freedom of speech and even the idea of freedom. So what is a newly member, newly elected member of the House of Representatives doing associating with individuals who are promoting anti-American ideas? Will she cozy up to Louis Farrakhan? Will she get closer to these people once she's in a position of power and give them cadre and entry into the U.S. Congress? Will she sponsor events that these organizations hope to have on the Hill? All of these questions are things that are troubling that need to be considered. Obviously, they didn't maintain enough attention to prevent her from getting elected. Not that this host would endorse one, an individual one way or another. But she should be closely watched as she enters into the Congress in January of 2019 to make sure that the people that she associated with in her private life do not become any public figures and especially don't have a platform to amplify their hate against American values. More after this. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction 
as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM. So we were able to talk about the Iranian sanctions in the first segment and then highlight the Islamist connections of a newly elected member of Congress from Michigan. But I'd like to turn back to a story that we've been covering for the past few weeks since now it's been one month since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist in self-imposed exile that was found finding himself walking into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and never walked out. The story keeps on generating news in the press, where this week Saudi Arabia was told by the UN Human Rights Council that it will prosecute those responsible that for killing Jamal Khashoggi, or sorry, Saudi Arabia told the UN Human Rights Council on Monday that it will prosecute those responsible for killing Jamal Khashoggi. The kingdom's human rights commissioner, as reported by DeutscheWeil.com, Bandar Ali Aban, was grilled by other nations over the killing, as well as on its human rights record. But not to say that this does not deserve more investigation by international bodies, but the members of the UN Human Rights Council and even the Turks themselves who are leading their own investigation into his killing have nothing to crow about regarding comparing themselves to Saudi Arabia's human rights record, which is in its own right something not to be proud of. Where Turkey ends up being the largest imprisoner of journalists in the West, if we consider Turkey to be part of the West, or the bridge between East and West, more so than any other country other than China, and where Turkey has denied rights to its academics, not just to its journalists, but also to its dissidents, to members of political parties, anyone who has come in the face of opposing Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of that country, has faced some sort of state censure, whether it be being told just to shut up or being put in prison and potentially even facing a life term because of ginned up connections to terror organizations and phantasmal forces. But it wasn't just the Saudis who were getting the bad end of the brunt from the Turks as it related to the Human Rights Council. But we had countries like Cuba, Russia, Iran, and others who also don't have a particularly stellar human rights record, finding themselves in the top 10 list of the State Department's report on gross abuses of human rights on an annual basis, maybe switching place between who's first, second, and third in terms of the country that violates human rights the most. 
More than that, we also have some more development in the case itself, where according to the Voice of America, Saudi Arabia sent a two-man cleanup team to erase evidence of the journalist's killing a week after he disappeared at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. A Turkish official was reported of saying on Monday, November 5th, calling it a sign that top Saudi officials knew of the crime. I'd like to break down Khashoggi just for another second, where if we were to look at an exercise and tactical manipulation of international media and a way in trying to pivot the attention from the atrocities and the oppression that you were committing in your own country, this would be the perfect play that Erdogan, and, and not just perfect, but the perfect cynical ploy that Erdogan and his minions have been able to exercise in that country. Let's turn back a second to the day that Khashoggi went missing. We know a few things about the day itself. The Saudis have admitted that this was a crime that was ordered by members of its own security services. How high up that it goes, we're not necessarily sure. But we can certainly know that the individuals responsible for killing Khashoggi were linked, at the very least, to the crown prince of that country, Mohammed bin Salman. But that's the focus that the Turks want you to be able to, 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 to be able to concentrate on, to take attention away from their own nefarious behavior in the last two years for certain since the alleged attempt coup attempt against Erdogan in July of 2016. But moreover, the last 16 years since Erdogan was first elected as prime minister of that country in November of 2002. If we just turn to Hurriyet newspaper, which is now, unfortunately, getting even closer to be a mouthpiece of the Turkish regime. Once a heralded free paper with free thought, something that was founded by the founder of the Turkish uh, Republic, Ataturk, Muhammad, uh, Kemal Ataturk, has now taken a more pro-Erdogan line. The first story in headline, Erdogan calls on foreign companies for joint production in healthcare. The second story, U.S. putting bounties on PKK positive, belated step, says a member of the Turkish cabinet. The next story talks about how the Turkish foreign minister discusses economic relations in Brunei and Turkey arrests two over attack on Italian priest killer. Lastly, a soccer headline and then even more news about how everything is going well in Turkey. The last thing that's covered here is how the EU has to be more honest to scrap Turkey membership talks. All the news coming out of the main Turkish daily, which is the most read in that country, maybe besides Kumhuriyet or the Deli Sabah, which are two other Turkish news outlets, have everything to do with positive press for that country. You do not see one critical headline against the president. And that's just a sampling from today, November 7th. Not to mention the issues that you have, the continuous Turkish repression of what's going on in southeastern Turkey against the Kurdish minority there, their overseas, not overseas, but over boundaries, interventions in Iraq, their collaborations with the Iranians, their now seemingly uh, muddled effort in trying to have joint forces patrolling with the Russians in Idlib province, an area that's the last readout of the Syrian rebels that started going against the Assad regime in 2011. And of course, the master manipulator, Erdogan, has been able to leak information on the Khashoggi affair as to be able to buttress any claims against his human rights record by keeping the focus on Saudi Arabia and not allowing Western countries to continue what's going on in his own country. This started with the release of American pastor Andrew Brunson, and three weeks later, we, it was reported 
that Erdogan was able to have sanctions by the American government against his justice minister and his interior minister because he let go of a political hostage. This has not stopped his calls for the United States to extradite a religious leader who himself had ties to Erdogan going back at least 20 or 30 years, Fethullah Gulen, the leader of the alleged, uh, or the alleged leader of the alleged coup attempt in July of 2016 from his Hizmet movement. But if we just look at the way that Erdogan is being able to play this, the media is going along with him just like Erdogan is controlling it as if though it was a violin or a fiddle. Every single thing that he has done has not necessarily been forgotten. It is not no longer on the minds of the oppressed Turkish minority groups that he continues to trounce upon their rights. But more than anything else, Erdogan is using someone else getting away with murder to get away with his own nefarious activities. More on Erdogan, Turkey, and other Middle East stories after the break. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that so while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. This is Greg Roman with the Middle East Stories of the Week. Now that we've discussed Saudi Arabia, Iran, the American elections and Islamist influence over it, and also Turkey, I'd like to turn to some more positive news. That of the daylight that has now opened up in the relationship between Gulf Arab Emirate states and the state of Israel. Several pieces of news have come out over the past weeks, and we haven't had a necessarily chance to, to, to address it. But there has been a steady trickle of visits by Israeli diplomats ministers, and even the prime minister himself to countries that Israeli government officials have not visited for over 25 years. We start with Miri Regev, Israel's culture and sports minister, visiting Abu Dhabi and its mosques, and also in Sharjah by being able to witness an Israeli competitor take a gold medal in the regional judo uh, uh, competition there. And having her not just be welcomed as a private citizen viewing her country's participant there, but on a formal diplomatic delegation to the United Arab Emirates, where only a few years ago, 
These two countries were at each other's throats. The UAE was solidly in the pro-Palestinian camp, or moreover, let's put it this way, the anti-Israel camp. And Israel was only accused nine years ago of carrying out an assassination against a member of Hamas's military wing, Abu Marbuch. Abu Marbuch, sorry. And this led the countries to have the lowest dissent in their relationship since the founding of the UAE and since the founding of the State of Israel, both in 1948 and then in 1960. But what now is a Israeli minister doing being invited to represent her country at an international sports competition in a country that, like I said beforehand, only nine years ago was putting the pictures of alleged 28, 28 alleged Mossad agents who were involved in taking out a member of Hamas. Regev isn't the only minister who's been able to visit there. There's also the International Renewable Energy Institute, which was placed in the UAE on the explicit condition that it would be willing to host an Israeli delegation to that international body. We also had another Israeli minister serving in the prime minister's office, Ayub Kara, who's responsible for a communications portfolio attending a high-tech conference. And in other countries, we look at Oman, where the Minister of Intelligence and Minister of Transport for Israel, Yisrael Katz, has now visited that country for a tech conference, not just to attend, but to promote the idea of creating a pan-Arab-Israeli rail link that would go from the shores of the Mediterranean in Tel Aviv through Jerusalem and make its way through Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and connect Israel with the rest of the Gulf Arab states. And probably... The most stellar and surprising visit of any Israeli politician was that of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meeting with the Sultan of Oman in a trip that was announced after it took place some two weeks ago. Now, let's look at the profile of the two countries that Israeli ministers were able to visit. First, on the United Arab Emirates. Since the rise of MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, there the crown prince of that country, we have seen that he has taken a Western slant and a Western tilt since his country has been increasingly threatened by Iran. It's just a short skip and a hop across the Persian Gulf from the Emirate nation. We see that he is linked to investing Western dollars in his economy. He's trying to transition his economy from a reliance on oil and gas to one that's reliance on knowledge and science. He has modernized that country. And if we're able to look at a, at a report that was written by president of the Middle East Forum, Daniel Pipes, on his visit to that a few year, of, of his visit to that country a few years ago, they are modernizing. They are trying to become part of a family of nations that is no longer that of a despotic regime, even though they do have autocratic tendencies, but they are trying to become one that belongs in the 21st century rather than some of their neighbors that would rather be in the 6th or the 7th century. Now, they have made noises towards accepting the Israelis by putting a diplomatic mission there a few years ago. But to openly welcome two Israeli ministers from the Likud party nonetheless, which is considered to be on the conservative right tilt of Israeli politics, and to show them their cultural locations, to have their own politicians meet with them, and to say, we are allowing you into this country, not just to get to the case of having you attend a sporting event, where only a few years ago, another Israeli competitor was allowed to compete in a sporting event 
in the UAE, I think it was Shahar Peher, who took place in a tennis tournament. And when she won, they wouldn't raise her flag. They wouldn't play the national anthem. They would barely even recognize, if at all, her national identity. And now when you have another Israeli athlete raising the Israeli flag, hearing the Israeli national anthem in an Arab state that was anathematic to the state of Israel for decades, that is what I call success. That is what I call forward movement. But moreover, the UAE itself, while it's a small island nation or, or, or a small archipelago, if we want to call it a nation, which is there on the Persian Gulf, Oman is a much, much, much more important country insofar as it relates to the Israeli-Omani-American strategic relationship. Oman has often found itself as being the weather vane state in the Arab world. On one hand, they have good relations with the Iranian government. On the other hand, they were the only country that didn't put a blockade on Qatar after the Gulf Cooperation Council announced strict measures by its other five member states against that country sitting on the Persian Gulf. Oman was the place of the first diplomatic negotiations between Nicholas Burns, who was then serving as an official in the State Department when George Bush started reaching out to the Iranians on the Iranian nuclear program in 2007 and 2008, during the last years of his administration. Oman was also the place that was the diplomatic pass-through with Americans and Iranians negotiating the release of on one side, Iranian nationals accused of helping the regime in the United States, and on the other side, Americans being held in Iranian prisons, like that of the Washington Post journalist and some others who were there, and it was in Oman that the exchange took place. Now we see the Omanis being in the middle between Israel and perhaps maybe they're speaking with the Qataris. Maybe they're speaking with the Iranians. I don't think that this is a break in the Omani relationship with Iran by having them host the prime minister in the capital of Muscat. But what I do think it is, is, is that the aggressive nature or the undertones that were being used by the Omani government and by other Arab governments in the Gulf against the state of Israel have now not just taken a certain amount of sucker between them on a private relationship. We've heard reports for years about Israeli intelligence officials going to Arab capitals to make sure that there was an understanding of how they could unitedly fight the Iranian threat. But now, this exposure between these two governments and these two countries, with the UAE and with Oman and Israel being on the other side, has risen to a new public level, and that is of strategic importance for the state of Israel. It doesn't just mean that there's a relationship that's budding there, but there is acceptance of that country by these two important Arab countries. If I was to act as a prophet and say what was going to happen next, I wouldn't be remiss to say that something that Daniel Pipes wrote about a few weeks ago in a uh, social media posting was that it's maybe time for Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, to travel to Jerusalem, to go to the Knesset, and to say, our previous hostilities are over, let's work together for our mutual interests. More after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West, 
while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. What a week of news that we've had and what an amount of momentous events that we've had for American democracy. But I'd like to turn our attention to not a federal race, but to a state race with vice chair of the Democratic National Committee, Keith Ellison, abandoning his House seat to be able to run for the attorney general spot in Minnesota in the wake of domestic abuse allegations by his former partner. And now after last night's election, he was able to edge it out and now take the position of Minnesota's top law enforcement official. As Fox News reports, Minnesota Democrat Representative Keith Ellison has been elected as a state attorney general, fending off his Republican opponent in an election mired with domestic abuse allegations. Ellison was seen as the comfortable favorite in the race, but his campaign was thrown into turmoil when his former girlfriend accused him in August of physical and emotional abuse when they dated. Karen Monahan, the former girlfriend, claimed he once dragged her off a bed while shouting profanities and sent multiple abusive text messages. She published a 2017 medical document that identified Ellison as the abuser who caused emotional and physical abuse. Ellison's lawyer responded, he presented as sincere in his shock her and disbelief that Ms. Monahan would make these allegations against him. But while that may have been the topic of the race itself or the most controversial issues is covered by Minnesota media, I'd like to turn to Ellison's other connections that most people may not necessarily be aware about, at least in the city of Philadelphia and perhaps around the rest of the world. Keith Ellison had a history of associating with somewhat non-American supporting groups, first and foremost with the Nation of Islam. Its leader, Louis Farrakhan, was only in Tehran, the capital of Iran, a few days ago, chanting, Death to America! alongside many of Iran's mullahs, ayatollahs, and haters of our republic. Now, you have Ellison being elected to a position where he will be responsible for carrying out not just the laws of the state of Minnesota, but also respecting the laws of the United States. And only a few decades ago, he was openly associating with Farrakhan, who has said death to America. Moreover, we find that his association with Farrakhan didn't end in the 1990s during the advent of the Million Man March. There are pictures which have been posted by members of Ellison's 
own campaign, which showed that he was openly cavorting and associating with Farrakhan as early or, or, or as late as a few years ago prior to his electoral ambitions of trying to take over the Democratic Party. Now, more than that, who else is Ellison associating with? He has written letters to support the Council on American Islamic Relations, the former um, or the alleged uh, co-conspirator, the alleged unindicted co-conspirator and many terrorism financing trials. He's had the opportunity to be able to speak at mainstream Islamist conventions throughout North America. And more than that, he has his own personal proclivities. Now, I'm not going to say that I'm in a position to judge what he did or what he didn't do. But I can say that I am in a position to judge that who he has been associating with and his record as it's related to his own public political engagement for the past decade since he's been serving in the House of Representatives is not something that is necessarily conducive with American democracy. How can the citizens of Minnesota trust someone who has been openly associating with individuals who have been promoting these anti-American ideas, whether they be supporters of terrorist organizations, whether they be supporters of an agenda, which is not liberal in nature, it's illiberal because of some of the things that they've been able to say and to get away with. We now have a shift in where not just Democratic Party politics are going, but also national politics. And this is something that we should be worried about. I understand the left-right divide, progressives versus conservatives, populists and nationalists, traditional Republicans, uh, Republicans in name only, centrist Democrats, leftist Democrats. I get the entire political spectrum and the entire political divide. But if we look at the connections between individuals whose ideology emanates from a 6th or 7th century interpretation of the way that the world should look, not because they're Muslim, not because they're followers of the faith of Islam, but because they want to return to a way in which society is governed that puts a religion first rather than putting the state, these United States first. I think that we are in for a very rocky road ahead unless the public wakes up to what is going on by allowing individuals like Keith Ellison to get elected to office without being cognizant. And maybe they even knew about his connections that he had had to some of these hate groups and to some of these leaders of hate groups. I mean, if we just extend the conversation a little bit in terms of how we find ourselves looking at individuals like Farrakhan or Linda Sarsour or other individuals who sling an American version of Islamism on a day-to-day basis. We have pictures now of former President Barack Obama standing next to Farrakhan. That was held closely until a few months after his leaving the White House. God forbid if he was to be associated with him politically and the American public would find out about who he may have been associating with. And even we have former President Bill Clinton sitting on the same stage with Aretha Fra- at Aretha Franklin's funeral with other civil rights icons like Jesse Jackson and others. And in the same row of seats... Louis Farrakhan. What are American presidents doing associating with this individual? And moreover, what are politicians who are running for office and getting elected to the highest office in the land in their own individual state doing also having been formerly associating with people who call not just for the genocide 
of a minority group, one that was especially struck only a week ago with the greatest massacre against the American Jewish community in its 400-year history, but someone who a few weeks, or rather a week after, goes to Iran, another country that calls for death to Israel, death to the United States, death to Jews, and death to other individuals that disagree with it. And then you have someone who associated with that figure being elected to the position of Minnesota Attorney General. Now, I think that's an individual like Ellison, if he would actually like to repent and to redeem himself and find some ways to be able actually to, to call out what um, his former mentor, let's not say mentor, the former leader of the group that he was associated with, every time that Farrakhan speaks, Ellison now is a defender of civil rights and of civil liberties in his state that he has been elected to serve as the protector of the law and the protector of the public interest should condemn anyone who he had been formerly associating with or that he may currently associate even with today. More on Qatar, Israel, and a sum up on Congress after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. In the last eight or nine minutes of this program, I'd like to reflect on an investigation that the Middle East Forum has been running for the past year and a half focused on Qatari influence in Washington, D.C., specifically its efforts to railroad a key piece of anti-terrorism legislation, House Resolution H.R. 2712, the Palestinian International Terrorism Support Protection Act, or an effort to punish those countries that host Palestinian terror organizations, finance Palestinian terror organizations, and provide sanctuary to their efforts. The countries that most come common and come to mind are Qatar, Turkey, and Iran. In May of 2017, Brian Mast, a member of Congress who I think was reelected last night, introduced this bill. In November of 2017, the House Foreign Affairs Committee passed it with a bipartisan rounding support of a voice vote, adding on an amendment 
that would call the administration, the Trump administration or any future presidential administration to look into the activities of countries that were supporting these terror organizations, specifically Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The day after the voice vote in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Qatari lobbying operation that we've reported on beforehand kicked into high gear. At an all-time high, using a firm called Stonington Strategies, led by Ted Cruz's former Deputy Chief of Staff, Nick Muzin, and his business partner, Joey Alaham, enlisted a stable of lobbyists, five or six strong, deploying to the Hill to advocate for Qatar's interests and against American interests, especially its efforts to protect its allies against groups that have murdered American citizens. Muzin and Alham, according to the Foreign Agent Registration Act filings that they were putting forward and supplemental strategies in the materials that they were circulating around the Hill and also in other venues that they were able to broadcast the Qatari intent, were meticulous in their efforts. First in December of 2017, by inviting pro-Israel community leaders on trips to Doha. Their logic was that if members of the pro-Israel community, especially from conservative and from right-wing groups, would visit Doha, how could Qatar be labeled as a state sponsor of terrorism? Perhaps the best way to ameliorate American concerns regarding Qatar's ties to Hamas would be through conversation and diplomacy rather than through sanctions. These leaders visited Qatar in January of 2018, February of 2018, all on trips that were sponsored by the Qatari government itself. The Qatari government even went so far as to channel donations to American Zionist organizations without the knowledge of their leaders knowing the source of that money in order to try to buy influence from them, indirectly through one of its agents who did not reveal the source of his funds for his hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations to these groups. In June of 2018, it was all of a sudden exposed. Not the intent of the lobbying operation, but the fact that it existed and that donations were being made and that individuals were being paid off. Quickly, on June 6th, Alham and Muzin disassociated themselves from Qatar, claiming that they would no longer work for the evil emirate. But they never filed. Well, Alham did. Alham did file a, a cease a document where he would stop working for the Qataris in, in June or July. But Stonington Strategies itself, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't had the new verifiers coming out, but to the best of my knowledge, is still shilling for Qatar. They have been the subject of a lawsuit, and this has gone beyond an influence campaign in Washington, D.C., where they met with dozens of members of Congress urging them to not pass this key piece of anti-terrorism legislation. But it went beyond that. There is a lawsuit which was filed by a businessman in Los Angeles named Elliot Broidy that accused Alaham and Muzin of working in cahoots with the Qatari government to hack hundreds of American officials. Not that Muzin and Alaham were doing the hacking, but they are allegedly, according to the complaint filed in both New York and in California federal court, had knowledge of what was going on. And then, allegedly, and this is all alleged, nothing's been brought to court right now, but this is uh, 
This is something that we know. We know that the influence campaign was going on by Muzin and Alham's own filings, but the alleged other nefarious, perhaps crossing the, 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 the verge of legal action taken up by these individuals, is only an accusation. But if it proves to be true, we have a state-sponsored lobbying operation, cyber espionage operation, influence operation against an American minority group, all with the intent of allowing Qatar to act how they want under their own foreign sovereign immunity that they're granted by the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act at will in the United States, whether it be in Washington, D.C., or in economic conferences that they've sponsored all over the East Coast, including Miami, and I believe Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, the individuals who went on these trips, they have acted out and they have protested against Qatar's influence operation. And I have to give credit to Mort Klein, the president of the Zionist Organization of America, for taking a brave step by signing on to a letter that supports H.R. 2712 and asks for its immediate passage in order to hold countries that support Palestinian terror groups like Qatar accountable. Only when we have more sunlight on this issue will it be leading itself to be the best disinfectant of Qatari influence and all of its horrendous outcomes that it was able to succeed in torpedoing a piece of legislation for the last year and a half. But I guarantee you, over the next eight weeks until the next Congress is sworn in, Many of the same organizations that were approached by these Qatari lobbyists, many members of Congress that were approached by Qatari lobbyists, will speak out and say, it's time to pass this legislation. If not now, then in the next session of Congress, the 116th. I'd like to thank Delaney Janchik for organizing today's program. I'd also like to thank everybody at the Middle East Forum who helped put this together today. And more than that, I'd like to thank you for listening. Have a great week. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio, WWDB 860 AM, signing off.